From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, floppy eyelid syndrome, the solution. Full thickness wedge excision should come with a, with a major health warning. Uh, and it's probably best to avoid this procedure where possible. First this. I had the opportunity to speak with Jay McDonald, the editor of ASCRS's Internet Forums, about membership in the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. The benefits of membership will have an immediate and tangible influence on your own practice. Stay tuned at the end of this podcast to find out how. In the last podcast, Daniel Ezra spoke to us about the mechanics of floppy eyelid syndrome. He left us hanging with no hope in sight. Today, Dr. Ezra comes to the rescue, describing the findings of his new study examining surgical treatments for floppy eyelid syndrome. Welcome back, Daniel. Last time you discussed the pathophysiology and associations of floppy eyelid syndrome without giving any treatments for it. Let me start out the discussion of floppy eyelid syndrome treatments by asking you what non-surgical treatments have been proposed for this condition. Well, several have been described, including uh, lid taping, use of lubricants at night, uh, lid margin cleaning, punctal plugs, but really none of these have been shown to be particularly effective. Um, it's also been suggested that changing sleeping side might help or getting patients to sleep on their backs. But this is in practice extremely difficult, particularly for um, obstructive sleep apnea patients who have really very deeply ingrained patterns of sleep. Uh, topical steroids um, also do help to a degree, but again, these are not long-term solutions. And anybody who's managed this condition will know that definitive treatment will require surgery. What surgical therapies have been proposed and what are their mechanical rationales? Well, several uh, surgical approaches have been described, and the rationale has simply been to tighten the upper lid and prevent aversion. The most widely described probably is the full thickness uh, pentagon wedge excision. Uh, I think just looking at previous publications, that is by far the most popular. The upper lid tarsal strip, lateral tarsal strips also have been described, and also tarsorophy procedures. But perhaps the most striking feature of all of these uh, reported surgical approaches is the extremely high success rates. And uh, we did a little review of this and found that uh, about, if we pull together all of these papers, we have a, a pooled success rate of about 95%, although the follow-up uh, details tended to be quite poor. But this very, high this very high success rate, rather, has not been our experience at Moorfield Hospital. Um, and I think anybody else treating this condition will also uh, concur that uh, surgical treatment, uh, although it's very helpful, doesn't quite carry a 95% plus uh, surgical success rate. What question did your study, did this study, seek to answer? Well, our question was very simple. We wanted to look at what procedures we were using at Moorfield Eye Hospital and to determine what their success rates were and try to compare um, the outcomes of the different procedures to try and determine which one uh, had the highest long-term success rate. Daniel, can I get you to describe the design of your study? Yeah, this was a cross-sectional study. We looked at all patients who'd had upper lid surgery for floppy eyelid syndrome, and we brought them back to the hospital uh, for an assessment of occurrence. So this was cross-sectional rather than retrospective. 
What were your findings? What were your results? Well, over a 15-year period, we identified 95 patients who had undergone surgery for floppy eyelid syndrome. 76 were included in the study, and which made a total of 101 different procedures. Uh, we identified four different procedures that we'd employed, which uh, consisted of the full thickness wedge excision, the upper lid lateral tarsal strip, a lateral canthus and medial canthus plication procedure, and also a, an upper lid medial canthal strip procedure predominantly directed for patients uh, with medial cancel laxity and sparing of the lateral cancer. Daniel, can I ask you to briefly walk me through each of these four surgical procedures? Certainly. The uh, full thickness wedge excision is something that will be familiar to many people. Um, briefly, a uh, vertical incision is made at the junction of the lateral third and medial two-thirds of the upper lid. Uh, a full thickness pentagon is then excised uh, and the wound edges uh, approximated using standard techniques, uh, sequential suturing of the, the grey line, lash line, and tarsal plate, and preceptal ubiquilaris, and then finally skin. Now, the amount of tissue resected is really determined intraoperatively by overlapping uh, the two cut edges to try to approximate what kind of size of excision would be required to achieve the appropriate upper lid tension. Now, the precise amount of tissue varies, but anyone who's done this procedure for floppy eyelid syndrome will know that you can excise quite a large amount of the tarsal plate in order to achieve the appropriate level of tightness. When we looked at our results, um, in many instances, really up to maybe 20 millimeters of tarsal plate was excised. The second procedure we looked at was the uh, upper lid lateral tarsal strip. Uh, now, this was, of course, originally described as a lower lid procedure, but the uh, application to the upper lid is fairly straightforward. A cantholysis of the superior limb of the lateral cantal tendon is made and a lateral tarsal strip is fashioned at the lateral border using standard techniques. Now, the process of creating the tarsal strip, of course, will help to increase tension across the lip because the lateral cantal tendon is being sacrificed as part of the procedure. But where the amount of shortening is insufficient, an extra piece of full thickness tissue can be removed, and this will typically be far less uh, than you would remove uh, with full thickness wedge excision and incorporating the tarsal strip into that. Uh, the wound uh, is then closed in a standard procedure. The strip is sutured to the lateral orbital wall, periosteum, and the regional witness tubercle using uh, 5-0 uh, proline, and then the wound is closed by reforming the lateral canthus and applying sutures to the orbicularis and skin uh, with Vicryl. One thing that can be a little awkward about an upper lid tarsal strip is, um, is dealing with the anterior lamella. And perhaps the best way of handling this is to just leave the anterior lamella uh, spared until the final stages of the procedure when it can be fashioned to just fit into an upper lid skin crease incision, uh, hiding the scar nicely. And uh, we've included some illustrations of that in our paper, which hopefully should be able to walk people through that uh, in quite a, quite a straightforward fashion. Now, the lateral medial cancel plication procedure is, again, fairly straightforward. The uh, lateral uh, cancel plication is performed first by creating an incision over the lateral palpable raffae and then dissecting down to the orbital rim and exposing the periosteum. Uh, a double-ended 6-0 proline suture is then passed through the periosteum and the lateral tarsal plate is then exposed uh, by creating a little tunnel 
uh, between the anterior and posterior lamellae of the lid. The suture is then passed to take a bite out of the lateral part of the tarsal plate, and then it's tightened to effectively plicate the lateral canthal tendon in such a way that the lateral canthus is not actually disrupted. Now, the medial canthal plication is a little trickier and is created through a medial skin crease incision that's extended medially over the lacrimal sac to expose the anterior limb of the medial canthal tendon. Again, a double-ended 6-0 proline suture is used, uh, passed through the medial canthal tendon, and then through the medial aspect of the tarsal plate and tightened. Uh, skin closure and orbicularis closure is achieved using standard techniques, 6-0 vicor. Now, the upper lid medial canthal strip procedure, the final one that we looked at, um, is a little trickier to describe, and this was uh, actually developed by Richard Collin at Moorfields Eye Hospital over the last few years. Uh, I mean, this procedure was really designed to uh, create a medial strip of tarsal plate that's advanced through the medial tissues above the superior canaliculus and then sutured straight down onto the medial canthal tendon to shorten the upper lid. So briefly, the upper tarsal plate is held with forceps and just lateral to the lacrimal punctum, a vertical full thickness incision is made, perhaps three millimeters lateral to the punctum, uh, and is extended right up to the upper border of the tarsal plate, dividing it in two. Uh, the amount of tightening is then estimated by pulling the lateral end of the lid towards the medial canthus, and a strip of lid margin, about three millimeters in height, is then taken away from the lateral part of the lid um, to a length which should match the approximated area of lid shortening required. The anterior lamella of this area is then resected in a pentagonal shape while preserving the remaining tarsal plate underneath. A probe is then placed in the canaliculus and uh, the anterior and posterior lamellae of the medial lid remnants are divided. A skin crease incision is then extended uh, over the medial canthal tendon to expose the anterior limb and the medial tarsal strip, which has been created, will then be advanced into this space, which has been created by that horizontal incision. The apex of the strip is then sutured onto the medial canthal tendon with 5-hour absorbed suture. And the edges of the lateral tarsal plate are then sutured to the medial tarsal plate remnant with 6-0 vicor. The skin crease incision and the pentagonal defect are then closed in a standard fashion with 6-0 vicor. And again, this is a tricky procedure, it's difficult to describe, but we have included a series of uh, illustrative steps, which hopefully should make this a little easier to understand. Now, the proof of the pudding is in the longevity of the repair. Which of these procedures provided the most durable benefit, and why do you think that was the case? We used um, a survival analysis using Kaplan-Meier methods and also Cox regression analysis um, to control for bilateral cases to ensure that uh, we weren't biased by more severe cases. And we found that both the lateral tarsal strip and the canthal plication procedures were significantly superior to the full thickness wedge excision. But we could not discern a difference between the canthal plication procedures and the lateral tarsal strip. Um, we found that the long-term survival trend for the lateral tarsal strip procedure was about 70%, up to about 10 years the canthal plication procedure, about 50%, and the full thickness wedge excision uh, came in at about 20% uh, long-term survival trend. Um, so we really found that the LTS 
um, the careful application procedures were superior. Um, our study was not powered to discern the difference between these two procedures, but we did find just on a descriptive level the lateral tarsal strip superior to the medial and lateral careful application procedures. Now, in terms of why we have this difference, well, we've suggested several possibilities. Firstly, the uh, lateral tarsal strip procedure creates a much broader pivot point uh, anchoring the tarsal plate to the lateral uh, orbital wall. And it's important to remember that when doing a lateral tarsal strip at the upper leg, you do create quite a substantial tarsal strip because the tarsal plate is, is really much larger. Uh, and this is suited at two points, of course, to the uh, periosteum, uh, preventing the uh, lateral part of the lid from just pivoting and inverting the lid. Uh, but of course, with the full thickness wedge excision, you're providing tightness to the lid, but that all occurs around an unaltered lateral canthal tendon. Uh, the second important issue really lies in sacrifice of the tarsal plate. Now, in the full thickness wedge excision, all of the tightening is achieved by removing tarsal plate, which can often be up to 50% of the structure. With the canthal plication procedure, the tarsal plate is completely preserved and the canthi are just simply plicated. Uh, with the lateral tarsal strip procedure, we're creating new scar tissue laterally, and much of the tightening is occurring by sacrificing the lateral canthal tendon. And this, of course, will have the effect of sparing much of the tarsal plate. Now, the lateral tarsal strip procedure may well be an optimal procedure to allow for preservation of the tarsal plate, and also allowing new scar tissue into base to stabilize the lateral canthal aspect of the lid. I found very compelling your argument of the advantage of three fixation points with the tarsal strip as opposed to two fixation points with the wedge resection. Let me ask this. Since different surgeons prefer different techniques and are therefore more experienced in the techniques of their preference, to what extent do you think your findings reflect differences in surgeon's skill rather than the relative advantages of the techniques themselves? Yeah, and this is a very important point, and it and it's a major problem really in surgical trials, um, which has the effect of really dramatically limiting power of studies. Um, and this is widely uh, written about in uh, papers on uh, surgical trial methodology. And I think we have to be pragmatic here, and a well-recognised way of addressing this problem is to categorise surgeons into different groups based on experience. And in our study, we uh, looked at consultants who are highly experienced against fellows who are perhaps less experienced. And we found that stratifying on these grounds did not affect the outcomes of surgery uh, at all. So this is a problem with looking at surgical outcomes. There's perhaps one of the most pragmatic ways of dealing with this, uh, which is widely described, is to stratify uh, according to different levels of experience and making comparisons. And we did not find that this affected the outcome. Daniel, having found what you found in this study, is there any role for full thickness wedge excision in the treatment of floppy eyelid syndrome? Yeah, I think this is the most important message of our study. Uh, and I think that really the full thickness wedge excision should come with a, with a major health warning. Uh, and it's probably best to avoid this procedure where possible. We also uh, did a sub-analysis in our paper. We looked at some full thickness wedge excisions, which also had... Uh, medial and lateral canthal plication procedures. And uh, we found that they performed just as badly as the full thickness wedge excision alone, indicating that probably uh, taking out a pentagon 
is the single most important factor in determining recurrence in uh, combined surgery. So I think it is something that we need to avoid because it does critically weaken the tarsal plates. And one other aspect of this may lie in uh, increasing the strain across the upper lid because we do get this hyperelasticity in, in uh, floppy eyelid syndrome. And I mean, if we just think about a spring, for example, which you might stretch to a given deformation and then cut it in half and stretch it again, the strain across that spring will be considerably more than in um, an uncut tissue. So let's remember that the tarsal plate is there to stress shield the upper lid. And by decreasing its size dramatically, we are going to increase the strain and the forces acting across that structure. And that's probably something that we want to avoid. I'm not an oculoplastic surgeon, but it seems to me that the upper lid lateral tarsal strip is less technically challenging than the alternatives. Why do anything else? That's a very good point. Um, I'd just firstly like to say that um, many surgeons will shy away from performing an upper lid lateral tarsal strip when they're perfectly competent performing a lower lid lateral tarsal strip. It really is just the same. And I think people should be encouraged to actually go ahead and do the procedure. Um, And this probably should be the procedure of choice. But um, I think when you're dealing with... uh, floppy eyelid patients with predominantly medial cancer laxity, I think we do need to address that medial canthus. And that can be done either by the plication procedure described or by the uh, medial tarsal strip procedure. And I think when faced with a case like that, I think if the surgeon's not confident addressing that medial canthus, um, then I think they should probably refer the patient on. Daniel, how do you know that the laxity is medial as opposed to lateral or nasal as opposed to temporal? Yeah, I think just by simply uh, putting traction on the upper lid laterally immediately, you can get a good feel for that. Um, I have to say it's unusual that patients have predominantly medial laxity, but there are those that do. And I think it's important to spot that because if you're going to do a lateral tarsal tar- strip procedure on a patient with predominantly medial cancer laxity, then you know, you're going to run into trouble unless you address that medial cancer. Daniel, when a floppy eyelid syndrome comes into your practice, what do you do? Well, the first thing is to really try and assess the patient as a whole. Importantly, look for symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea. And if undiagnosed, refer on to a sleep physician. Um, patients should be asked about their, uh, their daytime arousal, whether they get sleepy. Um, and there are various ways of doing this. There's something called the Epworth Daytime Somnolence Score, which is uh, readily available over the internet, um, which is a very good way of screening for obstructive sleep apnea. And I think if they have there any concerns, they should be referred on. Because sleep apnea isn't just about um, problems with arousal during the day, but it's also widely been shown to confer serious uh, medical risks, such as uh, cardiac and cerebrovascular problems. So it needs to be spotted, if not diagnosed, and managed appropriately. Uh, secondly, we also need to think about visual problems in these patients. And it's very easy to put down any problems with their vision uh, to ocular surface abnormalities, which many of these patients will have. But I think a keratoconus assessment needs to be made. So I think looking for clinical features of keratoconus and the slit lamp is important. And also, if topography is readily available, that should probably be performed as well. Uh, when looking at surgery for these patients, a good assessment of the lateral and medial canthus, looking for laxity of these structures, should be made. And I think that determining the type of surgical procedure uh, should be 
aimed to target those anatomically lax structures. And again, in patients with predominantly medial cancer laxity, we do need to address that medial canthus. Uh, but the important thing is that I think we need to stay away from the full thickness wedge excision when treating these patients. Daniel Ezra, thank you so much. Not at all. Not at all. It's nice speaking to you again. Daniel Ezra is fellow and lecturer in oculoplastics and orbital surgery at Moorfields Eye Hospital, University College London, Biomedical Research Center for Ophthalmology in London, England, United Kingdom. His paper, Long-Term Outcomes of Surgical Approaches to the Treatment of Floppy Eyelid Syndrome, appears in the April 2010 issue of Ophthalmology. Earlier, I had the chance to speak with Jay McDonald, editor of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery's Internet Forums, about the benefits of membership in the ASCRS. Well, I think the greatest uh, benefit is that you have this network of the top cataract and refractive surgeons uh, throughout the world, a network of people, publications, everything from... Uh, Eye world to the to the orange what I call the orange journal, which I think is the for me the leading source of peer review information that has to do with cataract and refractive surgery, and that's my focus. I can remember in those meet in the first few meetings I went to, just the list the networking and sitting in the room with peers and sharing information that was not on, that presented in the podium, but mostly an interchange uh, that happens in the hallway, and I would say that the uh, ASCRS is where I, the platform of friendships that I made in collegiality of being able to share not just uh, hot scientific topics, but a lot of practice management tips, sharing information about electronic medical records, how to uh, interview employees, I agree with you that that the meeting's super, and I really look forward to it every year. Of course, the biggest problem with the meeting is is that it only happens once every year for the annual meeting. But you've sought a way to bring a lot of the meeting to us every day uh, through a forum uh, in the context of the Internet. Jay, I wonder if you can tell me about your role and about the iConnect project. I immediately became a contributor and a person that asked questions, shared information, thoughts, philosophies, and approaches to surgical cases. I was uh, asked by Priscilla Arnold when she was president if I would mind uh, just sort of moderating and and editors what I'm called, but I'm not sure. Sure, that's what I, 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 nothing is ever edited that's put on there. It's a completely open forum. I've never edited something that someone has posted. What I have done over the years, I think, is formulating a direction for conversations and threads. If I go on the site, what are some of the things that I might see? Well, you might see how to handle uh, a, a cataract uh, that has uh, half the zonules missing. Or how, how would you uh, handle a, um, someone who uh, has a corneal injury uh, and how would you estimate what power lens? You might know uh, whether you use intracameral, what intracameral drugs are being used now is a hot subject. Uh, what people are doing in their operating rooms as far as uh, uh, personnel and efficiency. Uh, the questions are just 
everything you can think of that comes up daily in your practice. It might even be uh, a discussion about whether or not you dispense and how does one start a dispensary. I would say most questions are about some particular case that someone is having a problem with how to calculate a lens a lens power. And the benefit is that you immediately have hundreds of consultants out there who there'll be six or eight or ten that have had that exact problem or have an answer for you. So you immediately get a response or answer of a problem that you need help on. The best part about that is that you don't just get usually one answer. You'll get several answers, and maybe that will stimulate another opinion. So in a way, you have a peer review, instant peer review uh, case management form. In addition to that, we do have a refractive and a glaucoma, one that's purely uh, answers questions and answers that have to do with glaucoma, and then we have a business form where all kinds of business questions are asked and uh, and discussed. This is a great member benefit. How would I get to this site? With the new format, all you have to do is go to the SCRS website, and one of the bars across the top, the far right one, I believe, says, I connect. And if you click on that, it will instruct you how to sign up for uh, the iConnect so you can immediately then be in uh, be in the forum and be a part of the forum. There are hundreds of people looking in daily from all over the world, and these are people that are waiting to help you or are out there uh, gleaning that information about a case you have or a problem you may have. Jay, thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Josh. Ask questions of Dr. Ezra or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.